you, Gary. It's good to be with you. As a country, we've experienced numerous tragedies in the 2000s. Not the least of these tragedies are the many school shootings we've been through. But one of those shootings stands out as unique. There's the shooting at the Nickel Mine School in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania in 2006. It's where Charles Roberts, who's not Amish, went into an Amish school, killed five schoolgirls, wounded five others, before he turned the gun on himself. Now what makes that unique and what stands out is that the story shifted quickly and dramatically. The story shifted and changed from the story about the shooting and the shooter to the Amish forgiveness of the shooter and support of his family. On the day of the shooting, Amish walked across their fields to find the wife and children of the shooter to say they had forgiven him and they were there to support the family. The father of the shooter was a retired police officer and he wept in the arms of an Amish man who went to his house to give him support. The story became one of Amish forgiveness. News reporters doubted, rejected it. One reporter said he thought this was just a planned demonstration of forgiveness for the press. Another reporter wrote in the Boston Globe that forgiveness shouldn't be given. It was too quick and some things deserve hatred and not forgiveness. The story became who are these people who so quickly and readily forgive this kind of evil that is brought into their community? Who are those that go and support the wife and children of the shooter? Who so support a fund, a financial fund to support that wife? Who go on and make up half of the people at the funeral for the shooter to support the wife and children even while their own community is burying their own? The Amish can forgive like that because that's what they've trained themselves to do as a community. Oh, they know that the pain and the loss will continue. And they know that that initial decision to forgive will have to be made time and time again as that loss and grief promotes bitterness. But what they believe is that that, that bitterness, that anger, desire for revenge just serves to be destructive to other people. It destroys their own community and it destroys them. They believe that Jesus meant exactly what he said at the end of our parable and at the Lord's Prayer that you must forgive if you want to really experience God's forgiveness. I bring this right up at the front just to say that what we're talking about, this kind of forgiveness, is possible. It is not one of those things that we can throw off and say, this is a really nice ideal, but we know, God probably knows it's not really going to happen. 
if we follow Jesus and train ourselves to be obedient, that kind of impossible forgiveness can be a reality in our lives. Isn't that what it is to be the community of the Messiah? To forgive one another in that community? Just to avoid any confusion, when I'm talking about forgiveness, I'm not talking about denying what happened and pretending it didn't happen, and I'm not talking about allowing the consequences that must come or need to come to that other person for their own good. But our passage just deals with the heart of the one forgives, who forgives. And yeah, there are other passages that deal with church discipline and repentance, but our passage only deals with the heart of the forgiver, and that's where we need to stay. We like the idea of forgiveness. It's just forgiving somebody else. That's the issue. I mean, if forgiveness means I get to walk free of my sins before God and others, that's great. But when it means that I have to forgive another person who has wronged me, we're not so wild about that. Isn't that the truth behind Peter's question? Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter's setting limits there about forgiveness. How far does it go? Peter knows, though. Peter knows that Jesus wants his disciples to forgive. Peter knows that Jesus has said, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so we read in that day that some of the rabbis said you need to forgive your neighbor up to three times. And so Peter's going to take it up to seven. That's a good biblical number. We'll go up to there. How's that, Jesus? I know there are quite a few teachers in this group. You know, you have that student who thinks they get it, and they don't get it. And you ask the question, and they're sitting in their seat, and they just can't hardly keep their rear end in the seat, and they're bouncing, and their hands waving, and call on me, and call on me, and you call them. It's when teachers go bang their heads against the wall. But to laugh at Peter would be wrong here. Because isn't Peter's question our question? Lord, do I really have to let people walk all over me? In fact, I'd let people do wrong to me, and we'll get all pop psychology, right? That would just be enabling them and their bad behavior, and we don't want to do that. We're right there with Peter. Lord, we know you've told us we need to forgive, but do I have to be a doormat? Do I have to give up my rights? See, we're right there with Peter. We are Peter. We don't want to be in a situation where we have to forgive, where we feel like a victim of other people's behavior, and we feel like somehow they're getting off scot-free. We're very concerned about ourselves and protecting ourselves to forgive, to let people continue to act against us and just forgive seems like 
We're just putting ourselves as a victim in a place where we don't want to be. It seems like we're giving up a part of our rights. It seems like a bit of giving up a bit of who we are. We love the idea of forgiveness, but not when it comes to forgiving that other person. No limits, says Jesus. No limits to forgiveness. Jesus rejects the whole thinking behind the question. His answer comes in two parts. The first is a short answer. 70 times 7, or your translation may have 77. You've got the word 70, and they've got the word 7 there in Greek, and so some see it as 77, some take it as 70 times 7. I know the answer, and if you ask, I'll tell you later why it's which it is. But for our purposes, they both do the same thing. They say there are no limits. Peter, you would have this ledger book, this record, and you put somebody's name down and you give them seven lines, and after seven sins, you cross them off your list. Peter, what I'm telling you is you don't have enough lines in your ledger book. There are no limits. And then Jesus goes on and tells a parable. Why does he do that? He's already answered the question. He's told them 70 times 7 or 77, no limits. You don't have enough lines in your book. Why does he tell them the parable? He's given them the answer. Is it because Jesus knows how hard it is for us to forgive, and without more, we just won't get it? Does he know how protective we are of ourselves, how ego-driven, that unless he gives us some other perspective, some way of seeing this, that we won't be able to leave behind our old and learn how to forgive? And essentially, I think that's it. Jesus wants to give us a picture, an image of what life is like with God to allow us to enter into that. He knows that unless he gives us some sort of image, some new world, some new way of seeing the way life is with God, we won't be able to leave our old and enter that new. And so he tells a story. A simple story. Not really to teach the truth. He's already told them the truth. But what he's doing in the story is he's getting at that underlying resistance we have to the truth that he's already told us. The story is about the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom that comes to us as immeasurable forgiveness. It is forgiveness beyond paying, forgiveness impossible to pay. It is a forgiveness without merit, Forgiveness without works, it's a picture of this unfathomable grace of God and forgiveness. You look at that, it's pictured especially in the de debt that first servant had. He owed 10,000 denarii, 10,000 talents, sorry, you should have corrected me. We know that there were a denarii was a day's work, pay for a day's work. There were between five to 6,000 denarii and a talent. And we got 10,000 talents. 
So we're up here between 50 million and 60 million days work. The wages for that. It's a debt that's impossible to pay. One writer talks about oh, 10,000 was the largest Greek number. The talent was the largest unit of currency for the Greek world. And it's a, basically the equivalent of saying it's a zillion dollars. He's got a debt that is incapable. It's impossible to pay. And it says either in your translation, out of pity or out of compassion, this king forgives him the debt, cancels that debt, And we're driven back to look at what he's doing. And to realize as we're reading this, as we're reading the parable, we realize it's not about financial stuff. It's about forgiveness. We know that the, the debt that is being forgiven to that servant is equivalent to the debt of sin that God forgives. And the compassion of that king is equivalent to the compassion of God the Father for us. And we're driven back to look at that. For those of you guys who know me, know that I have to sit on that word compassion for just a minute. It's a key word in the Gospels and in Jesus. In fact, the last time I was able to speak here, a couple months ago, I spoke on the Good Samaritan. And the key aspect of the Good Samaritan, I said he was the one who he saw with compassion. And the reason I wanted to bring that out, I said that the reason Jesus puts that as the key thing in that parable is because it reflects what is in Jesus. Because so often we see Jesus seeing his world, feeling compassion, and moving out of that. And that is the primary spiritual motivation, as I see it, for Jesus reaching out. And so what we saw in the Samaritan was a reflection of who Jesus is and said that not only that, Jesus sees that same thing in his heavenly Father. And he puts that word in place in two key parables. And one was the prodigal son. Remember, son's coming back and the father sees him and has compassion and everything for his restoration it comes out of the compassion. And so it's no accident that Jesus puts that word here. The king had compassion on the servant. And what it should do, it should drive us back to look at what is the compassion, what is the level of forgiveness of God in our lives? How gracious has he been to us? What is that ledger of my sins that God has taken and canceled? Right up front, Jesus wants to know, yeah, the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is something that comes to us in this grace, this unfathomable grace of forgiveness. But listen, listen, Jesus makes it equally clear that that grace comes with responsibility. It is not some sort of cheap grace that allows us just to receive it and walk and go about our lives mindless of that forgiveness or mindless of the responsibility that comes with it. The grace is free, but it brings responsibility. Look back at that servant. It says when he, after the king forgave him that debt, it says he went out and found a fellow servant who owed him a comparatively trivial debt. I think that word found is kind of suggestive. I don't know. I've heard this parable told often when the guy, after he's forgiven, he walks out and at some point kind of stumbles across a fellow servant. 
this found suggest it's a little more sinister? Does he go looking for someone? Is that the implication of the found? Whatever case, he goes out and he finds a servant who, asks, who owes him a small amount, comparatively. He says, pay what you owe. And the servant says, give me time and I will pay you. Where have we heard that before? It's what the first servant said to the king. It's almost identical. Give me time and I'll pay you everything. And he was forgiven. And now this guy says, give me time and I will pay you. And that unforgiving servant did not wish to do it and has him thrown into jail. When the king hears about it, he calls that servant back. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant like I had had mercy on you? And if anything, that word should, when he says shouldn't you have forgiven him, is a weak translation. Because in English, we use should how? We can use it like, I should lose 10 pounds. Okay, we got doctors here. I should lose 20 or 25 pounds. But it may not happen. I guess we can use the word that way, but that word is often used for things that are requirements. Absolute necessities. It's used there in John, where just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's not, oh, it would be a good thing if he were lifted up. He must. We got the two on the road to Emmaus. They're going out there after the resurrection. Remember, Jesus appears. He comes alongside of them. And he says, wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And as the word is often used of a divine necessity, and isn't that the point here? Isn't that the king's point? You had to do it. It wasn't just a should, like it's a good thing, but you don't have to. It was required that you do this. There's something about this. He says that because you receive that forgiveness, you now have this requirement to do that. And he takes that servant and he has him sent off to jail now. Remember the first time you heard this parable? Or I hope it's every time you hear the parable. You hear this massive forgiveness for the first servant. And then you hear him, see him going out and taking a servant who owes him a small amount and having him put in jail till he pay it, and when the king calls him back, and the king takes that servant and has him sent away to jail, and you say, good, he got what he deserved. And as soon as we get to that point, the parable owns us. The parable has done its work. Jesus has painted a picture in a world, and he's drawn us in, and we have now made the spiritual judgment that if one has received mercy, they must show mercy. See, now it's not Lewis telling me or Gehring telling me, I need to forgive that person. It's not one of the elders or a friend saying, you got to go forgive them. I have made the judgment myself that if one receives mercy, they must show mercy. It's how Jesus works in his teaching. He draws you in. He paints a picture. You go in and you see it that way and you agree with it. And now he forces you to live with that reality that you've acknowledged is true. There's a spiritual truth about mercy received demands that mercy be shown. And Jesus drives it home very much like the prophet Nathan did with David. Remember David? 
sin with Bathsheba, Uriah, and Nathan the prophet has to go, and Nathan tells him a parable. He tells him a story, a parable, and lets him see what it really is has happened. And, and David gets in there and says, Oh, that man deserves to die. And what does Nathan tell David? You are the man. And Jesus drives this home to us in the same way. He says, after we've recognized that truth, he says, and so my heavenly Father will do to you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Oh, the kingdom comes to us as this immeasurable forgiveness, as grace, but it comes with a responsibility that we would forgive. When we see that there's this new responsibility, there's this new way as we enter into this world with Jesus, what we have to recognize is that that the old structures of life, the old patterns are no longer fitting. They're no longer appropriate. As we face that that this new situation, once we've been forgiven, we can no longer hold on to the old patterns of life. Go back to that servant. He works, and I'm using the imagery of a a ledger, an account book. That seems to be his mentality. This is the way you deal with life. You've got a ledger book, and in fact, he's very American. It fits in with us. We've got a list of the things I am obligated to, the things I owe. It's on this side. And over here, it's what everybody owes me. And I'll be responsible. I'll take care of my debts, and I will make darn sure that other people are responsible for what they owe me. And his thinking is that way. Forgiveness plays no role in his conception of the way you do life. And even when he goes before the king and he's confronted with the debt, what does he say? Give me time and I will repay. And we laugh because we know it's an unpayable debt. It's an impossible debt. But he's not thinking about forgiveness. And so what the king does is just takes his ledger and rips out the biggest part of that ledger book of what his debt is. How do you run a ledger kind of life when the whole half has been torn out of what you owe? It's no longer fitting. The Amish knew that you can't put new life back into the old structures of death. They knew you can't go to that old school building. You cannot wipe up the blood and patch the bullet holes and touch up the paint and send your children back in there. As soon as the police were done, the Amish men went at night and they removed every aspect of that school and it was gone. Six months later, in another location, they opened up New Hope School. Didn't Jesus say it? No one takes a new, unshrunk piece of cloth and attaches it to an old garment. Because when you do, it's going to rip away and the hole will be bigger than it was before. No one puts new wine in old wineskins because it's going to cause that wineskin to birth and you'll burst and you'll lose the wine. You will lose the wineskins. The old way of doing things doesn't fit with the new. 
We've been reading Paul here in the sermons. And we once existed in Adam and now we exist in Christ. We once were involved in this old man and we've died to that so we could be raised with Christ in that new man. We were enslaved to sin and now we've been set free to serve righteousness. We were in the flesh and now we're in the spirit. And how inappropriate it would be for Paul to say, we'll take the structures of life and the way we dealt with relationships in Adam and bring those over and try to use those as we serve Christ. Catch his imagery in Colossians. Speaking of Christ, he said, God made us alive together with him, forgiving us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with the legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul is speaking about that same forgiveness Jesus is, but what Paul does bring out is something that's not in our parable, is the terrible cost of that forgiveness that we see on the cross that record of our debt, that ledger of all of our sins, and it is now nailed with Christ to the cross. And as we stand there and see that, how inappropriate that we would hold on to a paltry little list of the offenses committed against us. The old structures of life aren't fitting, and they don't work in the new When we recognize that there are new structures, that that the old doesn't work, we realize not only that our structures have to change, that we have to be changed. As Lewis is talking last week, we need to be renewed. We need to be transformed. If we're going to live this out, there has to be some new, real change, transformation to who we are. Now, Matthew has a lot of things that seem really demanding. I'm going to share something I shared with my class in Sermon on the Mount. As we get in Matthew, like the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, we get our statement on forgiveness. They seem like impossible things. And in that teaching, we don't get a lot of saying about how does this happen? How are you going to do it? But I want to mention one framework that's important for Matt's gospel. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry, what do we hear? John the Baptist says, he is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. At the end of the gospel, what do we end up with? The Great Commission ends how? Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. So all of these things that Matthew that, that comes out in Matthew of Jesus' teaching that seems so impossible, fall within that bracket of the promise of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the personal presence of Jesus. And what we learn as we read the New Testament is those two aren't separate things. That it is through the presence of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life that we have the personal presence of Jesus. And ultimately, that's going to be how it happens. I remember seeing an old video. It's in the Amish country right after the shooting. And... uh, the press is there, and they've got their big lights and things, the generators at night, because they've got lights, and the Amish don't uh, have much electricity. And uh, 
And they got their lights going, and the reporters are there, and two Amish women walk out of one building, and they go down the stairs, and they run into another, and it's clearly they're, they're trying to avoid the reporters. And they actually, they have their bonnets on, they're looking down, in fact, they're kind of looking away. But one of the reporters does like reporters does, and he stands out forward and says, how do you guys forgive so quickly? And they're trying to walk, and one woman just stops, and she turns and said, only if Christ is in you. And she turned and walked away. Only if Christ is in you. We got that big framework in Matt, Matthew. Well, we also come back to our parable. And there's something that our parable implies. Though it doesn't say outright, but the idea that you have this massive forgiveness that comes from compassion and the requirement that if you receive that, you need to be forgiving. The implication seems to be that God's compassion, God's forgiveness should function as a transforming power within our lives. There is something about receiving that should make us different. It's not something, a nice little layer up here that stays at the surface but it's supposed to go deep and change us because we've received it. So much so that he can say, so my father will do for you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. And we misinterpret this in the Lord's Prayer if we take it as saying, well, if I forgive, then God forgives me. No, the whole point of the parable is God's massive forgiveness that comes first. But the point seems to be is if we're not forgiving, somehow we have not allowed God's forgiveness and his compassion to work in us the way it is supposed to work. If we really receive God's compassion, it should transform us to be more compassionate people. And the depth of that transformation comes at the end of this parable where he says, so my father will do unless you forgive your brother from the heart. In the Hebrew conception, the very depth of a person, where they make their spiritual moral decisions, is the heart. Remember Jeremiah had said, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. But Jeremiah later said, there will come a day when God will make a new covenant. He says, I will write my laws on their heart. Or the imagery in Ezekiel, where he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will take the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. God is using through his spirit, through the compassion, working to transform us at our deepest point so we can do no other than forgive. And a failure to forgive, an inability or unwillingness to forgive it's just a sign we've refused to allow God to work through his spirit, through that compassion, at the depth of our lives where he wants to work. Because he's working to bring a transformation that then allows us, enables us, requires us to forgive. And when that change happens, we start to learn the freedom of a forgiving heart. It's something that you learn in a, commu a forgiving community, a forgiven and a forgiving community. The freedom of this heart, because failure to forgive, holding on to bitterness, angerness, anger, 
Resentment, wanting retaliation, weighs us down, destroys the spiritual life, quenches the spirit. When I was in my early 20s, while I was in school, I worked at a store. I worked with a woman who was about 40 years old. And one night we were talking when there were no people around. And you got to know for the purposes of the story, she was a pretty hefty woman. And she was talking and talking about, you know, I've always had a problem with some extra weight, but she said, I was never this big. When I, in fact, she said, when I was younger, when I was 17, I was the runner-up in the county fair queen here. You know, it's up in Illinois, and you know, every county has its fair, and they have this Miss Broccoli or Miss Cauliflower or whatever it is, local crops. And she said, and then she spit out with absolute venom about how unfair those judges were her to when they picked that skinny girl. That they just were prejudiced against her because she was carrying a few extra pounds. How sad, 40 years old, 23 years earlier, a slight, and you're hanging on to that, and it's a decisive event in your life. And then she told me, she says, with absolute glee, just delight, and she says, you know what? And now that skinny girl is fatter than I am. She never talked with as much joy about her husband or her son. How sad. 23 years earlier, you received some offense, and it is eating you alive when you're 40. Do you think those judges know who she is? Are the judges still alive? Who's being eaten alive by that? Judith Wallerstein wrote a book a few years ago on men, women, and divorce. And she followed up. She, Judith Wallerstein was a professional counselor in Marin County, north of San Francisco. She went through um, a, with a bunch of families through their first year of going through a divorce. So she was a professional counselor, knew them all. And then she, she wanted to follow up, so later at five years, she got a grant so she could go up and follow all of those families again. Five years later, she appealed for another grant so she could go check and study those families, the, the married couple, the children, and follow up on all of them. And then she wrote that book. And there are a number of significant things that come out of it. That come out of it. <clears throat> but one thing that came out of it, she said... 50% of the women, one-third of the men, were just as angry at the 10-year mark after the divorce as they were during the first year of the divorce. At 10 years, they expressed their betrayal, their hurt, what was done to them in the same words and the same intensity as they did during the first year. Her spouses usually have moved on, new families going elsewhere. Who's being eaten alive by holding on to the anger and the bitterness? And to me, that gives lie to the statement we tell ourselves that time heals all wounds. Time doesn't heal. In fact, you know people where it's gotten worse that they take an offense and they nurture it and nurse it and it becomes full grown into hatred that's bigger years later than it was when it first started. Time does not heal all wounds. 
forgiveness does. Forgiveness does. Forgiveness may not bring a whole relationship, reconciliation. It may not build the trust back, but it will remove the scars and the wounds that are your life. And it will be involved in transforming you when you start moving from the point where you are hoping, in fact, praying for God's blessing in the life of the person that you once saw as enemy. Praying for the person who hurt you, for God's best for them, is the freedom of forgiveness. The passage, the passage, I think, gives us a prescription. It's one of those prescriptions, take as often as needed. You go and you find a place where you can be alone with God. You got to bring three things. You bring your heart, who you are, honestly, at the deepest level, the genuine you, because that's where God is going to want to work. Number two, you bring a remembrance of all that God has done for you compassionately. All of his grace, all of the forgiveness may take a little while, but recall that because that is what God is going to want to use to create a thankful heart to overwhelm you with his grace. And then thirdly, you bring the memory of what was done to you or the person who did that now you just stay there. Or you keep coming back until you find yourself praying God's blessing on that person. And that's how you know when you've forgiven. And you repeat as often as needed. And when you get up and walk away, you feel lighter. You can breathe. You will know the presence of a Christ, the joy of the Spirit, and tears of joy like you never have before. God, how good you are to us. Continually bring us back to that place where we know what you've done for us in Jesus Christ and work that in his Father. Drive it deep with your Holy Spirit that we would be transformed. That we would be the people that live in community and love one another and forgiveness the way you've called us to do. We pray in Jesus' name.